Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen. We love movies with Gordon Hayden. This film blew me away. So that's against the rules, and you can't sit with us. Did we just become best friends? Yep. Hasta la vista, baby. And the winner is... We Love Movies with Gordon Hayden. Spin. Hello, and you are very welcome along to We Love Movies. This week, there are plenty of films on offer in cinema, one of which is Michael Bay's new movie. It's called Ambulance. Not the most exciting of titles, but it does star Jake Gyllenhaal, and we'll be finding out if it's worth parting with your cash for very shortly, right here on We Love Movies. We Love Movies with Gordon Hayden on Spin. Now on We Love Movies, we are going to turn our attention to what is new in cinemas, and joining me is Andy McCarroll and Chris Wasser. Now, we've got a new Michael Bay film out and I don't know, Michael Bay. I'm not, I'm not a big fan of Michael Bay at all. And uh, yeah, it's a lot of style over substance. I always kind of thought Michael Bay is a great second unit director, but as a filmmaker, I don't know. But he does know how to craft an action sequence, but he's not a great storyteller whatsoever. Now, maybe you think differently. If so, get onto Twitter, let us know. Hashtag we love movies. Now, Andy, you took one for the team. You went along and saw Ambulance. Just from the um, the trailers and all the pumps surrounding this, I don't know, is, is Michael Bay trying to get back to almost the rock type of territory with this film? Yeah, that's what it feels like. It feels very much like classic Michael Bay. And there's even a moment in the film where one of the characters starts referencing Michael Bay movies. Mm-hmm. And one of the guys doesn't know who he is. He's talking about The Rock. And then he's like, oh, yeah, I know The Rock. It's an actor and it's really like Michael Bay going, oh, these kids don't know about like, you know, the big swing and dick of action movies. And here comes the new sheriff back in town. And it's the fact he's like referencing his own films in it. And it just falls off a cliff from there. I was excited to see it because I'll be honest, I have a soft spot for Michael Bay films. I love The Rock. I love Bad Boys, Armageddon. I've even got a soft spot for Pain and Gain. Jake Gyllenhaal, Yala Abdi Mateen, Eliza Gonzalez. Great cast. Like this could be one of those, you know, kind of old school throwbacks, but it actually feels like a parody of a Michael Bay film. The camera does not stay still for two seconds. It's remember that scene in Hot Fuzz, which was you know taking the Mick out Michael Bay films, where it's just like swirling around. It's that the whole time. It feels oh. like the whole film is shot as if somebody has dropped a camera from a great height in every single scene. None of it makes any sense, which you're not going to get in a, in a Michael Bay film anyway. Like one of the crew, Jake Jung goes, hey, here's this guy, Braveheart. You know, doesn't he look like the guy Braveheart with the big beard and the hair? And it's like, Braveheart didn't have a beard and bald head. What? Like, was somebody else cast and then you done this? And of course, the, you know, the, the plot of the film, for want of a better word, is Jake Gyllenhaal and his brother rob a bank. It all goes wrong. A cop gets shot. They commandeer an ambulance, which uh, Eliza Gonzalez's character has. And she is basically kept hostage while the police chase after them. But of course, you have to have the explanation for her character where she meets you know, her partner, you know, the, the guy in the ambulance who is about the most annoying character in any film ever. And he sits down. He's like, well, the word on the street is out on you. And she's like, what do you mean? What's that mean? You're tough. You're great. You're the best at what you do. You can keep anyone alive for 20 minutes, but nobody can get close to you and you're a real loose cannon. And you're like, imagine saying that to somebody your first day in the job. Gordon, you're great if you interview us for 20 minutes, but you're a real loose cannon. And nobody can get close to you in your personal life. You would say, get lost. Instead, what she does is have an ad for Heineken Zero in the middle. Of, and I'm not exaggerating. He literally goes, oh, you're on the beer already. She goes, no, it's a Heineken Zero. No alcohol. And it's like, what? Oh no. And just every part of it like, is just excess. The police captain who's chased them can't just be a police captain who's chased them. The police captain has to show up in like, you know, his old college jersey with camouflage pants, driving a Volkswagen Beetle, 
with a giant dog in the back of the car, which of course you would bring your giant dog to a, a police stakeout for a bank robbery. The everything like there, there's not a lick of fruit left in LA because every police car goes trouncing through every single fruit stall every two seconds. The people driving these cars are morons because every single police car in this film is driving on a straight road and crashes or flies off a hill or starts doing like somersaults in the middle of an empty car park. It is just mind-numbingly stupid, and it has the distinction of being the first film in 15 years I have walked out of because I was an hour into the film, and I looked at my watchman. There's an hour and 40 minutes left of this. I can't do this anymore. I'm gone. Oh, and, my God. And I can safely say I missed nothing, and if I had to guess right now, I'd say I guessed every single thing that happened in that film because it is an absolute shambles of a thing it is borderline unwatchable and as someone who used to like like i like stupid action films but there is nothing in this every line of dialogue seems like it's somebody you know you gave them money here do a piss take of a michael bay film except it's actually michael bay making it and he actually shows up as well himself he's like one of the swat guys he like keeps shooting himself in this weird way where it's like you know here's a 60 year old you know swat guy running around with him it's like why are you in this film like what is the point of any of this and Jake Gyllenhaal, you can just see, he's almost just looking to the camera going, no, no, look look how much I got paid for this. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm here. That's Don't, don't judge me on this. Judge me on what I got paid for this because he almost looks embarrassed to be in this thing because it's, 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 it's nothing. It's an absolute nothing of a film. I'm actually surprised why Jake Gyllenhaal is in this. Andy, while you gather your thoughts and uh, get a damp cloth to put on your forehead, <laughs> here is just a little bit from Ambulance. I'm sorry, brother. Sorry that I brought you into this. I just wanted things to be the way they used to be. That's my brother, Will. I could use some help. My wife needs this surgery. This is real life. How's that right? You put your life down on the line for this country? You leave your family, your home? How much do you need? 231. How about more? 32 million. I need an extra man. I came to you for a loan. Look, have I ever gotten you anything that I couldn't get you out of? Now, Andy, the only thing outside of Jake Gyllenhaal lead the charge here and a lot of up and comers uh, on the on the cusp of going A-list that star in this uh, latest Michael Bay monstrosity. The other big talking point is this drone footage that Michael Bay um, um, has, has used for this film. There is an actual um, behind the scenes featurette and his executive producer is interviewed for this featurette. And he said, one of the first things I got to do when I when I start working with Michael again is I have to try and find the latest toys and gadgets and blah, 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 blah for Michael. And so I think it's his, um, is it first person view or something, FPV or uh, I could be getting this wrong, is the type of drone footage. And the guys who operate it, they look like they're about 15 and they wear, it looks like SWAT masks, but again, it's all this sort of POV style and they wear the masks. And by wearing the masks, I, I don't know if they're able to control the drones through their actual, um, from the glasses that they're wearing, these special glasses. And then they've also got remote control as well. Anyway, it, again, it's given them this sort of um, first person sort of view. But I see I mean, just before the clip, they were talking about how the camera never stays still. Is this drone footage used to excess as a matter of interest? It's exactly that. It's it's like when you get a, a new filter on Instagram where, you know, you, your face can be the dog or your face. It's like he's swiping through that the whole time. 
scenes where it's two people talking the drone is like circling it, it'll like come from 100 meters away fly down go over them circle around and it's like all they're saying is okay we need to go to x y and z or we need to ring this guy or we have to go for enchiladas which is a scene which requires a camera to fall off a building slide down circle the two characters and then go back we then find them in a restaurant that serves sushi and enchiladas for some reason and the camera is just like will not stop circling around them there's also a heist in this movie which is a bad enough that it's a blatant ripoff of he and i think michael bay kind of went i think i'm being too subtle that this is a ripoff of he and then inexplicably half the gang start pulling down the masks that you know val kilmer and the gang had in heat i was like what are you doing so if you can imagine what the drones are like during just you know a simple dialogue scene because he isn't confident enough in any of the dialogue or any of the actors to just be interesting themselves everything has to be done to excess you will nearly have a you know a dizziness fit trying to watch an action scene with those drones gone on. I felt like I was getting off the world's worst roller coaster after. I was grateful that I didn't have to sit through the rest of it, but my God, he made me sit through an hour of absolute nonsense. I remember watching the fourth Transformers film, and I brought a friend of mine who was a big Transformers film fan. And I just I was in absolute agony. I, I felt like I was dealing with some sort of seasickness because like that, Michael Bay thinks when he's making something epic, it's about the runtime as opposed to the quality on screen. And actually, it was this friend of mine. He turned to me one stage and went, I get what you mean about these Transformers films. He goes, this is dreadful. And I went, I'm, I'm actually glad now you finally see Transformers for what it is. But Michael Bay, Chris, just to bring you in here, um, I remember hearing an interview with him years ago and he went back to one of his old college lecturers, one of his old film study lecturers, because he was really hurt by some of the comments critics had to say about him, about his style of filmmaking. And she said to him, the problem is with them, Michael, is that, you know, one, you're ahead of your time. And then eventually the appreciation, I'm paraphrasing here, will come around for your work. But they're, but you're just you're you're moving ahead of sort of what is current and what people are looking for at the moment in action films. Where does he stand at the moment now, Chris? Is he a bit of a relic of the 90s or what? Um, or like what? Like if you're thinking of Michael Bay, like where does he fit in the world of films right now, do you think? I don't really think he fits at all in the world of films right now. Um, although I, I should add that Andy's review of, of Half of Ambulance, because he didn't watch the second half of it, and we're going to talk about that again, Andy. Uh, it's actually made me want to see it, um, because I've been maybe skeptical about this thing, uh, but also thinking, you know, this isn't an original film. It's actually, I think it might be the first, is it the first Michael Bay remake? Um, yeah, it is a French actually, film, isn't it? The, yeah, the, 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 the Danish, uh, Danish film. film, film Danish, um, yeah, from the early 90s. Um, and perhaps the reason why Jake Gyllenhaal got involved, because whenever Jake Gyllenhaal gets involved in something like this, you, I always think, you know, he's one of the smart guys. If he is doing a big, you know, uh, uh, guns and explosions blockbuster, and especially doing one with Michael Bay, there has to have been at least at the beginning some sort of story that attracted him to this because you know he he does go for for good screenplays and even if the films don't always turn out well in the end you can always see what he was going for but michael bay i think the worst thing that ever happened to michael bay it might have made him a lot of money was that he said yes to the transformers franchise and at the beginning that of the beginning of that franchise that first transformers film maybe because you then compare it to everything that came after particularly the last of mark Wahlberg, the last night that first one wasn't terrible now, half the time you didn't know what was happening on screen, but there was it was something it, it had it just been a one off. You would be looking at it now going, yeah, do you remember that really kind of just, you know, mind blowing, but also nauseating, you know, robot film that was out a few years ago. Oh, that was interesting. How come it's never, ever happened with that? 
trying to create this massive, you know, uh, uh, franchise that, you know, people can relate to without, you know, giving them headaches, that didn't, that didn't work. And I, I think Michael, Michael Bay for a while, because he didn't do anything except for those Transformers films, just completely lost control of himself. And any attempt that he's made to, you know, kind of convince us that he's a serious filmmaker, whether it's that Secret Soldiers of Benghazi film or, or, or Pain and Gain, maybe even Six Underground, which is probably not a seri- an attempt at showing us that you're a serious filmmaker. It's kind of failed because he can't help himself. He's, he's a man, you know, he's almost like... Um, he's a franchise into himself and he's a walking, talking stereotype. And he's, he's got all of these trademarks that he has to put in his films. And they're a little bit annoying at this stage. And they're, they're also kind of, you know, you, they're predictable. They're, they're, they're just, I, I just don't see what, why anyone would want to work with him anymore. So Does he said, kind of represent an almost, bear with me on this one now, but almost a slightly toxic masculinity within film. There, there is that you know there is this idea because like the first film that he did make was bad boys and he was kind of setting out a stall on that picture that you know here's the good guys of the film you know the tough masculine men being all manly men and saving the day and they have to save the girl and it's all men 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 and he kind of carried that through with the rock and armageddon and pearl harbor and it's only when you see him make the transformers films then and he's actually uh you know doing something worse which is actually putting the likes of you know mega fox scarty hansen front and center but kind of treating them like objects it was almost better when he just kind of just had the men out in front because there was something to laugh at them but now it was problematic so basically what i'm trying to say is there is a toxic masculinity problem with michael bay as a filmmaker where he just he is he's stuck in his own time i'm not sure what that time is but there's not, I don't know if there is any place for him. I don't know if there ever was any place for him, but certainly not now. And look, I, as much as, you know, as I, I'm not surprised by Andy saying that Ambulance is terrible, but there is a part of me that wants to see it, if only because Jake Gyllenhaal is in it. Yeah, Andy, out of 10 for the hour that you saw of, of Ambulance, what would you give that? Zero. I, I genuinely cannot think of one thing. I was like, oh yeah, no, that was really good. And, like, and I love Jake Gyllenhaal and I really like, yeah, Abdul Mateen. And there was nothing in this. I, everything I can think of about this film was negative. I, I There was not one point to go, oh yeah, well, that part was really good. Nothing. Zero out of 10 for the first time ever. Wow. There we go. Ambulance. Avoid at all costs. If you've managed to last the entire runtime, be intrigued to know, get onto Twitter and let us know. Hashtag we love movies. Um, still to come, we're going to be reviewing The Cellar. But next up, we did touch upon this film last week. Chris gave it a glowing review. And that is Sean Baker's latest film, Red Rocket. Now, for those that don't know, Sean Baker made The Florida Project and he made Tangerine. And he's one of those filmmakers, Chris, I kind of think he's there's kind of shades of Todd Salons about him, Harmony Corinne, that type of filmmaker. His stuff has a very naturalistic feel about it. And that's one of the things I do like about him is that you really feel like you are there in these really grimy, backward America-like settings. And I think he manages to capture that, as I mentioned, in a very naturalistic way. If you were to try to describe him to somebody, how would you put it? Yeah, I think he's definitely better than Harry Corinne. Um, And he does, you know, whether it's in the characterization, the performances, the actual film, the technique that he uses as well, and just even the filming, uh, even the equipment that he uses, it's all quite lo-fi. And if I could, you know, look, again, you know, Sean Baker, to, to, to say what I was saying about Michael Bay, he, he is almost a franchise to him, unto himself in that his films do shine a light on, you know, people, uh, the marginalized in American society. And let's take a look at, you know, people on the outskirts. And also 
kind of hold them up against, for example, in the in the Florida project, we're looking at kind of, you know, life on the breadline. And, you know, we're looking at these people who who basically live in and out of these motels. And it's, it was all about, you know, the kind hearted manager of the of this motel played by Willem Dafoe right in the background then. You have Disneyland. And one of the main characters in the Florida project was this little girl who all she wanted to do was go to Disneyland. And it just it's like this is your real life. And this is you know, your mom can barely afford to keep you here. And then you've got this supposed paradise in the background. That's the kind of, you know, that's the kind of juxtaposition that we're dealing with here. But also the way that film was was, was done, there was a throwback to his first film, Tangerine. Now, Tangerine, which is about uh, sex workers on Christmas Day which I think is a, is a great sell for any film that was all shot on an iPhone. And the very last scene in the Florida project, I won't say what happens, but that bit was shot on an iPhone too, because, the, because location wise, without giving anything away and I hope I'm not, they couldn't get permission to film in a certain location. So Sean Baker couldn't bring in a camera crew, couldn't bring in mice, anything. So he decided, well, we're still going to do it. We'll go in with our with our iPhones. So he kind of works around, you know, any sort of restrictions, whether it's, you know, uh, not having the rights to film in a location, maybe kind of running out of money, the budgetary constraints, whatever. He still manages to tell the story because the story is always the important part. And that's what makes Red Rocket so effective. It's a damn good story. Well, for those that haven't seen it, Red Rocket, Simon Rex is the star of this. And Simon Rex is one of those guys that I suppose during the maybe the 90s and early noughties, there seemed like a bit of promise from him, but um, he didn't kind of really reach the the summit out of which that maybe some felt he probably could achieve, but he is absolutely perfect as what is about he's dubbed as a suitcase pimp, which is sort of a, a term which is sort of given to some guys that work within the adult film industry. These guys that come across extremely charming who tend to have girls working for them, but in essence, they're pretty much like a pimp, even though they don't seem to strike that particular type of mold. But um, he's one of these guys where he just seems to be a bit of a poisonous individual. Everyone he comes into contact with, he just turns their lives upside down. And he, he may take up residence with his ex-wife and her mother in, again, a very marginalized part of uh, Texas. And uh, he's trying to basically get himself back on his feet until he kind of figures out his next scam. Andy, I have to say, I really like this film. Like, it's definitely a very character-driven movie. It's not extremely plot-heavy, but it's about this guy who was a one-time successful porn star, and he's trying to get back on his feet, and he is incredibly charming. But lurking in the back of his mind, he's just looking, he's on the take, and he will use anybody to try and further himself. What did you make of Red Rocket? This absolutely saved my life. This, the, the saving grace for Mamulance was walking in. I saw that Red Rocket was starting in an hour and a half. And I thought, oh, if this film's 90 minutes, I might be able to catch that as well. And then realized Ambulance was two and a half hours. Thankfully, walking out made me able to see this. It is absolutely fantastic. And like you said, Rex, Simon Rex just has this like real, like the character is just so acting in his self-interest. He's almost cruel in the way he just uses and manipulates people. But you're, you can't help but be drawn in. You can see why people are drawn to him. And I really like how realistic it was. It wasn't a case of, oh, he's being bad for bad sake. He's just a selfish git. Mm. And everything he does is all about him. And if Simon Rex didn't play it the way he did, it would be completely just, you know, an unlikable, despicable character. But because he has that charisma to him as well, not that you're rooting for him, but you just can't take your eyes off. And like Chris said in his review, it's just a real story. It doesn't have, you know, exploding helicopters or this. It's just all about the characters and the location. And it's absolutely fantastic. It, it's definitely not for everybody, but it is something that I just really 
whatever about ambulance, whatever the likes of Spider-Man, whatever we say, most people you're going to go and see it, you're going to go and see it anyway. But I would 100%, these are the type of films you need to encourage people to see because it is just a fantastic story, some great performances and incredibly well made. Yeah, he's a bit of like a covert narcissist in a way because, and what's a real big gear change within the film is he goes into a donut shop to um, just celebrate the fact that he's bringing money into the house for his ex-wife and her mother. And the mother, like they, there's there's clearly issues going on within this house with, uh, with drug use and what have you. And their way of celebrating is to go off and buy some donuts. And within that donut store, he sees a girl, she's 17, she's a few weeks shy of turning 18. And that's where he sees his his golden ticket, because if he can persuade her to come with him when he's built up enough money, which he reckons won't take too long and get her to L.A., he's going to put her into the porn industry. And this girl is so blinkered by his charm that she wants to get out of this backward town and head to L.A. And he knows that he can manipulate and use her as his way to get back on top within the uh, the adult film industry. It's and. The film does go in a direction you are not expecting in that third act at all, at all. And uh, I have to say, I was just riveted by it. I just, the only thing I didn't think worked was just the line from his ex-wife when she calls him a suitcase pimp. Unless you're aware of what that term means, you, you, you'd be kind of going, like, I don't know why she's calling them that. I don't know. I don't know. That was just only a small, very, very, very small quibble. But I believed everything. And but Chris, do you think this has the making of of turning even Simon Rex's fortunes around and really kind of putting them on maybe casting direct directors radars now. I hope so actually. Yeah. Because uh, I wasn't too familiar. I had seen this guy before, but it wasn't, uh, you know, <laughs> I wasn't, you know, sitting here waiting for the next Simon Rex film to come out. Um, but he has surprised people. I think this film, I said it last week in the review, this should have been nominated for everything. Um, and I think there were some issues with that uh, would have been nominated for you know screen actors guilds award and you know the 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 whole issue of non-actors being cast in roles here there was something there was some sort of controversy around that but i would hope that you know casting agents are looking at simon rex and thinking okay we might have treated this guy as a joke before but this guy has some you know serious you know acting muscles here and he flexes them very extraordinarily well in in red rocket and i think i hope you know for 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 sean baker's next project that you know i'd love to see sean baker make films like this forever but i would also like to see you know a major studio you know give him a bit more money and 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 if he has you know a kind of a bigger scope to do something that isn't kind of kind of you know again i if if he's if his next film is like this fair enough but he deserves to have a bigger team and a bigger budget i'm not sure why you know, nobody has, has, has given that to him at this uh, at, at this point, because he's also, you know, you guys have seen it now. He has this very effective way of telling stories where he both leans into the drama. You know, he doesn't shy away from, you know, uh, disturbing you or making you laugh or making you laugh at things that, you know, you shouldn't be laughing at, but also cutting away from scenes and leaving you wondering what happened next and then revealing what happened mm. in the most extraordinary of ways. So there is this, uh, qu- there is quite a surprise in the third act of Red Rockers and the way that it's delivered is just fabulous. So he is an expert storyteller. I'd like to see him get more credit. He deserves it. And Simon Rex is a brilliant performer and I'd like to see casting agents give him a bit more love. Yeah. I think he's going to suffer the same fate that um, uh, was a Bria Viante from the Florida project who was nominated and won like every support and actress award going. And then I think because she was so believable, because it's such a dirty, grimy movie, I don't think she's done anything since or has even mm. been cast in anything on a high profile since. I'm afraid that will kind of happen. Um, the same thing will happen to him. I hope not, because this is an incredibly nuanced performance with a character that 
you could end up absolutely hating or be absolutely repulsed by, but you still manage to find the, the shred of a real person in there. Um, we got scores from Chris last week, Andy, but uh, bearing in mind you gave Ambulance 0 out of 10, um, what would you give Red Rocket? I'd give it an 8 out of 10. I really, really enjoyed it. And it's been one of my favourites so far this year. And I'm, I'm disgusted that Chris had recommended this to me. I'm not going to lie. I was <laughs> sitting there watching it. I am really enjoying this. And I'm dreading having to tell him that. <laughs> <laughs> Great stuff. 8 out of 10. I'd match you for that, uh, Andy, and give Red Rocket the same. And um, we're now going to move on to the Irish horror movie, The Cellar, which stars Owen Mackin and Alicia Cuthbert. And it all centres on a house, a haunted house with a very dangerous seller. Before we chat about it, here's just a little bit from Brenda Muldowney's new film, The Cellar. I need you to watch Stephen tonight. So you're leaving us here on our first night. Go down and check the circuit breaker. No, I'm scared. There's 10 steps to the bottom. Count each step. Can you do that? One, two. You're doing great, Ellie. Keep counting. Ellie! 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 We've talked to her friends, but no leads, unfortunately. Something happened in the cellar. What about this? It's definitely a representation for a dimension. There's symbols above all the doors. An ancient evil. So there's a little bit from The Cellar, which is playing in Irish films, Irish films and Irish cinemas uh, this weekend. And it, it's also exclusively been signed to Shudder. So it's going to really put it out onto the, the world stage now for Brenda Muldowney. Um, the um, the premise of this one, Chris, is Brenda Muldowney, he, he's built upon a short film which garnered an awful lot of attention from a few years ago called Ten Steps, where you've got um, uh, a mother and father that go out to dinner for the evening with another couple and they've moved into a new house and their daughter rings because some weird things are going on in the house and the electricity goes, memory serves me right, and she has to uh, venture down into the cellar to try and find the, essentially, the, the electricity box and try and fix things or just pull up the switch or whatever. And as she's going down the steps, it should be only 10 steps, but the steps keep going down and down and down and down. And then, you lo and behold, the cellar is a gateway to hell. Who would have thought it? So um, he's built upon this now for the, his new movie, The Cellar. Um, now, when you're sometimes they're trying to expand short films, it, does, it normally doesn't always go great. So um, the trailer looks promising. It looks like it's really well shot, but it also looks like a film where we've got to get this American actress in here. Even though she hasn't done loads for a while, because she's going to bring a bit of money in here. And we're going to bring this, we're going to take this sort of idea here. And essentially what I'm trying to get at, Chris, is I've seen films like Shrooms, where they cobble together loads of ideas in order to play to an international market. And I'm just hoping the same isn't for the seller. There are an awful lot of ideas in here and an awful lot of good ideas, Gordon. But when you put them all together, I'm afraid the seller kind of talks itself into a corner because, as you said, there is a great idea for a short film here. And there was a promising short film made about this. But it's when you start to explain everything around it, that's when you start having some problems. And the idea is also expanded that Alicia Cooper and Owen Mackin, you know, they are still they're the mother and father figure here. They're Kira and Brian Woods. And they're the new owners of of a house, a very spooky looking house, which is in the Irish countryside. Not really sure where it's supposed to be in Ireland. The film never really establishes that. But, you know, 
it's not important. Um, their son Stephen, played by Dylan Fitzmaurice Brady, he loves the new house. I mean, it's a massive, you know, big playground for him. But their teenage daughter Ellie, Abby Fitz, who sometimes has an American accent, sometimes has an Irish accent, she hates it there. Um, well, she doesn't have to worry because she's. It's not long before she completely vanishes into thin air. I mean, one night the parents run off. To, it's on their first night in the house that the parents have to go to this important work meeting. Their work not ever really being established either. Um, and while they're gone, their daughter rings. The electricity's gone. It's sort of the same setup again. She goes down to the cellar to fix it. The mum's on the phone to her while she's, you know, heading towards the electricity box. And she's counting the steps because she's in the dark and she's afraid. And she just keeps counting and counting and counting. And as it turns out, she just, you know, she, I won't say where she's gone. You know, look, you, you said enough about the short film there, but she does disappear. So this guard investigation comes up short then, you know, everyone's just like, you know, treating it as though it's not a supernatural occurrence. But Kira, played by Alicia Cooper, she knows that something's up here. So she decides to look into matters for herself, you know, investigating who lived in this house before, what's the story with the previous homeowners, and what's the story with this weird, you know, uh, uh, folklore surrounding what happens to previous owners. Chris, unfortunately, time is caught up with us, so we can't delve in too deeply to the yeah. setup this week. But overall, um, what did you make of it in scores out of 10? It's not a bad setup, and it certainly looks the part. I mean, it's very slickly photographed, um, but... Gordon, it's a film about a missing child and nobody in this film ever seems to show any real emotion about that child going missing. And it's it's full of characters, you know, who talk and behave in ways that are very stagey and they talk and behave in ways that normal people wouldn't. So it's very flash. It's not very scary. There are not, you know, I, I, kept, I kept hoping there were some genuine scares uh, around the corner. They never came. And the tension building, you know, there, there's there's an awful lot of, there, there are several moments in here that could have been better had, you know, Muldowney not been cutting away from, mm-hmm. from, from you know, from the from the boogeyman in the corner, basically. And I didn't think the performances were all that great. And the puzzling finale just still has me scratching my head a week later. So all in all, it's a very disjointed, flat and disappointing effort. Oh, there we go. Out of 10. I'm going to go with four, unfortunately. Four for The Cellar, which is currently in cinemas this weekend. And uh, avoid ambulance. That's the big takeaway. Avoid ambulance and get along to Red Rocket. If, if there's anything you're going to do this weekend, cinema-wise, get to Red Rocket. We can't recommend it highly enough. Chris Wasser, Andy McCarroll, a pleasure as always. That's the first half of We Love Movies to a close. We'll be back in just a few minutes. We love movies with Gordon Hayden on Spin. Welcome back. Now, out in Irish cinemas this week is the horror movie The Cellar, starring Alicia Cuthbert. Now, for those that go, Alicia Cuthbert, where do I know her from again? She starred as Kiefer Sutherland's daughter in 24. She was also the love interest of Luke Wilson in Old School. She's had a small role in Love Actually. And probably her biggest roles have been in the likes of The Girl Next Door and House of Wax. Well, she's returning to the horror genre for The Cellar. And in the film, she plays a mother whose daughter mysteriously vanishes in the cellar of their new house in Roscommon. And she soon discovers that there's an ancient and powerful entity controlling their home and that she will have to face it or risk losing her family's soul forever. Now, the cellar is currently on general release here in Ireland and it's also available worldwide to subscribers to Shudder, which is kind of like the Netflix for horror movies. Now, I recently spoke to the film's director, Brendan Muldowney. He made a cracking short film called 10 Steps. I'd actually urge you to see the short film 10 Steps before going to the cellar because it's expanded on that short film to feature length for the cellar and it's such an intriguing premise. We'll get into all about the genesis of the cellar through uh, the 10 Steps short film in our interview with Brendan which you'll hear very shortly but first here is a clip from the cellar. I need you to watch Stephen tonight. So you're leaving us here? 
on our first night. Go down and check the circuit breaker. No, I'm scared. There's 10 steps to the bottom. Count each step, can you do that? One, two. You're doing great, Ellie. Keep counting. Three. Unfortunately, something happened in the cellar. What about this? It's definitely a representation for a dimension. There's symbols above all the doors. An ancient evil. Brendan, a pleasure to be in your company again. Thanks so much for your time. Uh, the cellar is out. But before we talk about the cellar, I want to jump back to 10 steps, which when that short, when I first saw that short film, I was blown away with it. I thought that was such an intriguing premise. It was the type of thing you'd almost imagine Hammer or Amicus back in the day would have made something like this. And I just wanted to ask, because this is I, such a powerful short film. So it must have been fermenting in your head for some time about maybe expanding on it. And now we finally have that expansion with the seller. So can I ask you about when you thought, okay, I'm now going to develop 10 steps into a feature, when did this start to really come into mind? So the, that short film, The 10 Steps, was made in 2004. Really unique film, very uh, successful for me, actually, but it was really unique in that it won Best Short at the Sitges uh, Fantastic Film Festival, which is a hardcore horror uh, festival, a hardcore horror audience, an adult audience. And in the same month, it won... Uh, Best short at the New York International Children's Film Festival. So right there and then, and it, it won many more awards at, fant- at horror festivals and at children's film festivals. So right there, I knew there was something special about it. I knew that it was it was bridging the gap between these really different audiences. So that told me that there was something unique about it. You know, not every theme or stories able to do that mm. and then over the years you know it was on youtube before i put it we, we we have it on youtube now our company but before that someone else had it on i never bothered getting it taken off um, and it, it racked up a lot of views and and it was on other platforms that have now closed down like atom films was for a platform for short films and i used to look at the comments i mean i don't anymore i try and i don't even read reviews anymore but at the time you know i was fascinated reading the reviews uh, the, the comments underneath, say, YouTube, uh, our YouTube video, and uh, overwhelmingly they, they would say, I wonder what happens next. And mm-hmm. I've seen over the years they teach it in schools. I've seen it on, I see through Twitter or on YouTube. I see it taught in schools. I see um, classes using these story blocks. I don't, I don't know what this is, but it's some sort of storytelling technique they use in schools. And they're imagining what happens after the, the short film. So the amount of times I've seen people say, I'd love to know what happens next. And, you know, they're all guessing what would happen. That I suppose over the years, I, I started to think about what would happen next. And, and I've been trying to write a feature version of this since the film board ran a, uh, what do you call it? It was called the Catalyst Project in 2007. And they made three films out of that, I think, Rewind, PJ Dillon's one, Connor Horgan made one, and I've forgotten what it's called. It was The End of the World, the apocalyptic one. Um, and there was a third one, but anyway. Oh, okay. I know, 100, was it 100 Days? 100, 100 Mornings. 100, 100, 100 Mornings, yeah, something like that. Yes, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, 
So they basically it was these low, but they were making low budget films because, you know, it's very hard to get your first film made. And it was the first thing. And I wrote two scripts for that. One was Savage and one was a version of the 10 steps. So that's how long ago, since 2007, <sighs> I've had a feature version of this. So and, and was there ever a worry, though, when you've made such a successful short that by expanding on it, that you're kind of going, oh, God, like, you know, what I mean? because it, it, it's so good in itself that, you know, in order to develop it, you because that's such a kicker of an ending. Now, where does this girl go? We should say for those that have that haven't seen 10 Steps or, un, or Unsure, it's essentially about a, a, a couple who've gone out for dinner. They got they're living in the spooky old house and the kids are at home. But the eldest daughter is old enough to be able to be ba- to babysit, and there's a bit of a there's a power cut or something like that. And she is talking to the parents on the phone, who are enjoying their dinner, and they're saying, "Listen, you need to go down into the cellar there, and there's an electricity box, and you'll be able to sort things out." But of course, to, to kind of help her through the terror of going down into the cellar, because who likes to go down into a dark old cellar? There's only ten steps down, and sure, she goes past the ten steps. And it kind of has a bit of a Lucio Fulci for to get into our Italian uh, exploitation. Is there a bit of a gateway into hell or something like that? Mm-hmm. So um, that I'd love that. W- were you worried, though, Brendan, as much as you had this idea that it, not that it would do a disservice to the short, but there's a worry that sometimes pulling it apart that unfortunately might stretch it? Well, I well, look, I, you, you don't really worry when you. You, you know, you'd sort of, you just come up against problems when you're making films. But uh, I suppose, you know, the natural order of things, financers, funding bodies, they're basically the brakes on that sort of thing. So they will, they just won't let you go any further with, with something that's not working. So, I, yeah, look, I tried to extend the short film into a feature and that didn't work. Mm-hmm. Then I started try- thinking, well, the short film could be a prologue and then we'll have a new family move into the house and we'll go from there. And that wasn't working either. And so um, it's not that I never worried as much as I just did go through a lot of variations of how to find this. I mean, I think there was a moment that I realized that the strongest character hook I had was to you know, use the short film as a sort of an opening and the strongest character hook was to have a mother who is desperately trying to find her daughter. It, mm-hmm. That was to me, that that was where it started to settle in. I mean, the only other problem I had was then obviously in the short film, you don't have to explain the mythology. So I had to explore mythology, you know, and, and I went through lots of different things from Irish mythology, like there was Druids and the Balor, the, the one I, a king of the four Morians was in there at one stage. I mean, it was crazy stuff, but um, and then finally, I, I came around to a sort of mathematical sort of theme, more of a H.P. Lovecraft sort of vibe. In, in terms of marketing the film, um, it, it's always good to have a bit of star power attached to it, Brendan. And you've got Alicia Cuthbert in there, and of course, we've got our own Owen Mack in there too. And so you've got a good, strong cast there, front and center. And of course, Alicia has a, a has a lot of clout stateside as well. Can I ask you about trying to get her involved? Because it would have been at the height of the pandemic when phone calls would have been had with her trying to get her uh, signed up for this film. Was that a, a difficult process? Well, the casting was difficult in, in across the board because I couldn't do live ca- any live auditions for not the leads now, but even for the the two the children the the, the the two actors who play the kids. I had to do all that through Zoom. But with um, Alicia, uh, well, you see, Owen Mack and I've known for years. He was in my first film, Savage. He had a small role in that. 
So it was great to now work with Owen in a lead. And Owen's agent is also Alicia's agent. So it was just it was very easy. Like we got the script to her. I had one phone call with her and uh, Zoom, sorry. And it was just so easy because, I, you know, there was lots of things I was thinking that she was saying before I'd say them or if I'd say it, she'd go, that's exactly where I am at with the character. And right down to where and I was afraid to bring it up, but Alicia's blonde, not normally. She um, has her hair dyed blonde. And I thought the character would be better as a, you know, with darker hair and not, you know, this is the character it was. And she said it before I did. She said, I'm thinking I, I'd dye the hair. So like, it was just so easy. She was, she was on board. She wanted an adventure as well. She, she wanted to do something. And, and, you know, the fact that it was COVID, you know, it, it made a lot of things hard, but it made a lot of things good as well. It meant that because she had to quarantine herself and Owen had to hang out for two weeks before the film in, we were staying, myself and the two actors were staying in these cottages, uh, their holiday cottages beside the house. So in a way, like, I mean, I was busy doing a lot of stuff, but I was able to drop into them in the evenings and we, and it was nice weather. We were was it nice. No, it was November. We still were able to, it wasn't bad weather. We were able to dress up and, and sit outside and just chat. So yeah, no, that was it, Alicia and Owen were uh, hugely supportive and, and really, really a pleasure to work with. I mean, uh, like one of the other great things as well, uh, Brendan, is that it's been signed by Shudder. So you're now getting the international audience attached to it. And I have to say, you've got a great eye, Brendan. You've always have. And it, it's such a real cinematic film there. Um, in terms of touchstones uh, and, and films that you would have looked and drawn inspiration from, I mentioned how you know, Amicus and Hammer, you know what I mean? In terms of the, the plot for like 10 steps, kind of you would imagine it being back in one of those films. Were there any particular movies that you were watching or uh, prior to shooting or even when you were developing the actual script for The Cellar that you drew upon for inspiration? Or even when I was uh, in my in my teens, in, or, or, or when I was a seven-year-old in the 70s. Yeah, of course. Um, I have a feeling there's a lot in there because when I was writing... Even when I was, I do some research, and I, you know, there was there's a hidden sort of cupboard in in the house in in the script, and I did some research, and I found that there's a hidden what there's a wall they knocked down in the Amityville Horror, and it's all red inside. And I had written my this room as a, with red, red, and I went, oh, that's where that's coming from. So I, you know, you have to you have to be careful because very subconsciously you are. But in fairness, the whole point of the short film and what I tried to bring into this was was yes to use the tropes of horror films. Um, so let me see, it was it would be inspired by the, you know, something like The Haunting, Robert Wise's 1963, The Haunting, which is all about atmosphere. There's no gore. So that's where the idea originally came from. I would have read a comic when I was younger called The 13th Floor. It was written by two writers who, <clears throat> they wrote to uh, Judge Dredd, to, uh, it was in 2018, but the, the 13th Floor, I think was in The Eagle or something. And, the 13th floor was about a tower block where there was a, a lift, an elevator, which was like Hal from to Space Odyssey 2001. It was a computerized, you could talk to you. Mm -hmm. And they hadn't built the tower block with a 13th floor because of superstition. So the plot would always be this computer would, if he didn't like a drug dealer in the neighborhood or whatever, he would they'd get in the lift and it would take them to this 13th floor, which was this sort of, you know, somewhere. And it, but, you know, so it was this idea of, you you know and I, I mean look yes there's many films that are, are gates to hell and you mentioned Lucio Fulci 
the beyond. Um, if you look at, in, without spoilers, you know, at the end of our film, even visually is referencing the beyond. No, I, um, I thought so. I was there going, I, I think there's a nod to Fulci there. Yeah, I think there is. is. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. There's nods to, to, to a million different things in there. And some of them, I, I'm not even, they did, weren't even subconscious. There were coincidences. The voices from the sink. I haven't seen the new It but, uh, movies, but my daughter told me, no, there's, um, there's voices from the sink. The, the ball coming down the stairs, you know, now we do something different with our ball because we set it up in, in and that's where it, it really earns its place. But then it does come down the stairs. And if you go to YouTube, you'll find 30, uh, the 30 scariest bouncing balls in horror films. It's a very popular trope. Yeah. Um, but what else? There was another film that the Final Destination is, you wouldn't think it, is an influence. Think really? of it, Final Destination has an, a presence. It's death, basically. And, and when death enters a room where someone is... It creeps in, a curtain might blow, it comes across and something might fall over, but you know that there's a presence moving around. So um, that's, yeah, that was for the short film as well. That was a, an influence. It, like horror, it, it's one of those great genres as well, though, Brendan, that it can travel. And you don't always need to have the biggest of budgets either for horror because the fan base likes things down and dirty and gritty and what have you. Um now, as I mentioned, like Shudder, you know, is on board. Is the, staying with the horror genre, is this something that you're thinking about continuing with? Or, 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 or again, are we looking to do something completely different for the next film? You know, uh, if you look at my back catalogue, I would say to you they're all horror films in a way. They've all played at all the fantastic the genre festivals. So they call it the Fantastisk Federation of Europe. They've played at um, all of them. Savage is, 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 is about violence. Love Eternal is a Japanese novel just bonkers. Um, Pilgrimage is ultra violence. Um, and where will I go next? I've got a great, really good. Uh, I'm so pleased with it. Um, and I won't say too much, but it's a, a folk horror and it is set in the past again. So I suppose it would be closest to the witch. Um, but it's, it's fun. So it is within the horror genre. Yeah. Where I'll stay. But in the meantime, the seller, uh, congrats, Brendan, on, uh, on getting it made because I can only imagine the level of stress that you were under at making this film, the height of lockdown, as you mentioned, level five. There's always that worry. Are we going to get it to the finish line? And you did indeed. And it's finally out there, not only for Irish audiences, but it's going to get to be seen on the world stage as well. Thanks to Shudder there too. Um, Brendan Muldowney, always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. And we wish you the best of luck with The Cellar. Thanks. We Love Movies with Gordon Hayden on Spin. And that's our lot for this week on We Love Movies. From me, Gordon Hayden, we'll chat to you again next Sunday from 8, right here on Spin.